3CR would like to acknowledge the Kulin Nations, true owners, caretakers and custodians of the land from which we broadcast. 3CR pays respect to elders past and present of the Kulin Nation. We recognise their unceded sovereignty. This is 3CR Breakfast. Alternative news, analysis and current affairs. Monday to Friday, 7am to 8.30am. Good morning, you're listening to 3CR Monday Breakfast. My name is Jackson, and in the studio with me, uh, James has returned. Good morning, James. Good morning, Jackson. Good morning, listeners. Um, Yeah, it was nice to have a little break, but um, it's great to be back in Melbourne. It's a beautiful city. Mm, And it's actually uh, quite mild which is nice for me. I hate the cold weather and it's already nine degrees and it's going to be pretty warm today, I think. A high of, oh no, 13. But, you know, it started high, so it's going to stay (laughs) around the same height, I guess, all day. We've got a pretty busy show today, so probably should get straight into a rundown. Um, First up this morning, we'll be hearing uh, an interview uh, with Tim Singleton Norton that you recorded last week. James, what's that about? Um, yeah, we're talking about, we had a, a discussion with Tim um, a few weeks ago on talking about um, the Cambridge Analytica scandal. And this, I guess, is, is continuing on a little bit of that discussion about um, Digital Rights Watch's work. Mm. Um, but um, in particular, we're talking about encryption and the proposed encryption legislation the government wants to bring in. Mm, something I know nothing about, so I'll be listening closely to that. Uh, at 7.30, we're joined by a writer and recent contributor to Mianjin, Anna Spargo-Ryan, who's going to um, have a bit of a chat about an essay she's written called A Formal Inequality, which is kind of dissecting, I guess, white, cis, ableist, feminist um, perspectives. Would that be a... Yeah, and I think overall it's, it, it's a really great article that I think mm. people should read that kind of touches on a lot of things about um, you know, different waves of feminism and history of kind of um, feminism and, and I guess some of the limitations of, of capitalism in terms of trying to fight for, uh, you know, any kind of social justice issues and things like that where the capitalism can just bring those things back and she touches on the kind of legal aspects of um, sexism. Mm. Yeah, and how equality for some is really just reinforcing that inequality across the board in some cases. Uh, at 7.50, that's at 7.30, that interview with Anna Spargo-Ryan. At 7.50, we'll have our regular segment over the wall. This week, Duncan is talking again to Mark O'Brien from the Tenancy, uh, the Tenants Union uh, about um, no reason evictions, which is a pretty serious issue, obviously. Uh, and then at 8 a.m., we'll be joined by Brett DeHert over the phone, uh, who's from Our City, Our Square. And he's going to be chatting about some of the revelations about our new Lord Mayor, Sally Cap, and some of the donations that were made to her mayoral campaign from a lot of um, uh, big swinging property developers, which you know, of which she until recently was one, mm. uh, and what that means for things like uh, the development of Fed Square, the development of our city in general. Um, as Brett is from our city, our square, I'm sure he'll be focusing on Fed Square, but you know we can move out that conversation more broadly to the develop the rapid growth and development of Melbourne and how our new Lord Mayor will um, what her, what opinion she will have on that? 
Uh, it is NADOC week as well, beginning this week. So obviously we have Beyond the Bars happening all this week on 3CR from 11am this morning. They're broadcasting from the Dame Phyllis Frost Centre, Women's Prison in Deer Park. It's amazing radio every year, Beyond the Bars, and I really encourage everyone to stay tuned all day and listen because it's um, there's nothing else like it, I would say. Yeah, it's an amazing project, and I think people should definitely have a listen throughout the days. Uh, and... In celebration of NADOC Week, the theme this year is Because of Her, We Can. Uh, we're going to be joined by uh, Dr. Virginia Marshall. Um, Virginia Marshall is the inaugural Indigenous Postdoctoral Fellow with uh, ANU, and she's an expert in Indigenous water rights. She's a practicing lawyer and has written a fantastic book called Overturning Aquinalius, which looks at um, just the absence of access to water, the importance of water culturally to Indigenous Australians and the absence of water from current native title legislation. And we're going to be following on a conversation we had last week with Robbie Thorpe about um, some of the obstacles and problems around the rush towards treaty at the moment in Victoria and New South Wales. And hopefully, uh, I'm sure Dr. Marshall will be able to add some stuff to that conversation. And that's that's at 8.15. That's our whole show. So it's pretty busy. Uh, so... Maybe we should just jump into a very quick alternative news. Let's do it. Some folks know about it, some don't. Some will learn to shout it, some won't. But sooner or later, baby, here's a ditty. Say you're going to have to get right down to the real nitty-gritty. Let's get right down to the real nitty-gritty now. One, two, nitty-gritty now, yeah. Well, I wanted to, um, I guess, kick things off with something, <clears throat> excuse me, that we do sometimes, but not always, I guess, is to play a little clip, um, because I thought that this is a really great uh, short little interview um, from the 7.30 report that Virginia Trioli does with David Linehelm, um, which, uh, you know, if people don't know the kind of comments and stuff that he said in um, Parliament, you'll, you'll certainly see in the interview, but I, I think it really furthers the conversation that we've been having on Monday Breakfast about um, sexism, about male violence, about all those kind of things that we're continuing to um, have a discussion around. So I'll just play the interview and then um, we can have a little chat when it finishes. Now, politics is often a grubby business of name-calling, backstabbing and buffoonery, but even by those standards, Parliament hit a new low last week. You might remember during a Senate debate, Senator David Lionhelm called out across the chamber to Senator Sarah Hanson-Young for her to, quote, stop shagging men. That was during a debate about protecting women in the form of pepper spray and tasers. Senator Hanson-Young later went up to Senator Lionhelm and asked him if he said what she thought he had. He confirmed that he had told her to stop shagging men and he also told her to F off. Senator Lionhelm doesn't dispute her version of events, but in media interviews afterwards, he didn't apologise and he went further, airing more rumours about the senator. He's been roundly condemned for that, but he's not backing down. I spoke to him a short time ago. Senator David Lionhelm, welcome to 7.30. Thank you. Uh, senator Sarah Hanson-Young has engaged lawyers ahead of a potential defamation action for you and others, we understand. Would you like to take this opportunity to withdraw those comments you made and apologise for them? No, bring it on. Why not? Why won't you withdraw them? Because the point I was trying to make is, is valid. I'm on very solid ground, very legitimate. Um, I am opposed to misandry, just as I'm opposed to misogyny. And I'm also entitled to call out double standards. So arguing on the one hand that um, 
uh, all men um, are evil, the enemy, um, rapists, uh, sexual, uh, sexual predators, and then on the other hand, having uh, normal relationships with men obviously is contradictory, and I, I can call it out. So um, give me the quote from Senator Sarah Hanson-Young where she said any of those things that you just mentioned there, all men are rapists and the like, I, I where's, the, where's the quote? I was there, it wasn't caught on Hansard, I was in the chamber, it was in the context of a great deal of, of back chat going on. Uh, I understand, Senator, that you actually can't really recall exactly what it was that she said. I can recall the, the context, it was in the context of a self-defence motion, it was in the context of a one-minute statement by Senate Janet Rice to the effect that men are collectively responsible for the violence. And it was uh, Senator Hanson Young called out words very similar, or if not identical, to if only men would stop raping women or all men are rapists or words to that effect. No, they're, they're not the same thing, but as we've established, um, and I think you've admitted you don't exactly remember, and she certainly denies saying those things. But in, she, any, case, but in any case, do you, do you see, as it would seem virtually everyone in Australia sees right now, how offensive, how inappropriate and hurtful those remarks are? Or do, or do you simply not see that? Um, offence is taken personally. Miss Andry is offensive, and I take well, offence at Andrew that. Well, leave Miss Andrew to one side. No, do you see, no, no do let's you, not take it no, to No, because we're, de we're dealing with something that actually happened in, in the Senate. Do yes, you, and I was do there, you, do and it was you accept, Do you accept that those comments that you made were inappropriate to be made to a woman and in, in the Senate chamber? No. So how is it that you can sit here and say that, but I imagine if that comment was made to any woman in your family, I should imagine you'd take a very different view, wouldn't you? No, no woman in my family would accuse all men of being sexual predators. And now that it's Senator Sarah Hanson-Young, you, you certainly can't you, produce that quote, and she certainly denies it. So you believe her and you're calling me a liar. Thank you very much. No, I'm saying that you actually can't remember. You've, you've said that you can't exactly remember what she said. And, and do I have and you to... And you've given me words to the effect I, that range across a, a number do, of different do scenarios. Have, do I have to remember every word precisely for it to be true? In order to justify a pretty strong comment, yeah, I reckon you do. No, I don't reckon I don't. Um, I've ever wondered if you've ever paused to reflect on why you sometimes have such a reflex to get so personal and frankly bitchy when women take you on. Have you ever stopped and wondered about that? I don't accept the premise of your question. Let me say, tell you what it's based on. It's based on the comments that you made to Senator Sarah Hanson-Young. It's made on comments that you made to an elderly woman once who criticised you and you told her to, quote, go away and stop proving you're a bimbo. I'd say those two examples constitute a reflex to get pretty bitchy with women. Why do you think that is? Well, uh, let, me, uh, uh, let me put it this way. When I am abused, accused of something such as being a sexual predator, along with all the other, all the other men in Australia. I'm going to jump in there. And I don't think anyone accused you of that, but go on. Yes, no. Well, you weren't there. I was. Um, and uh, when, uh, when people, irrespective of their age, irrespective of their gender, write obnoxious emails to me, and the woman who wrote that did, um, I feel that I'm perfectly entitled to respond. I guess, I it, I guess I Australia will form its own view on that. Time I is tight, so will. we'll have to leave it yeah. there. Senator, thank you. Thank you. Now, politics is often a... What do you say? Well, yeah, it is... I don't know. It, it's kind of... It's amazing that uh, a politician is saying that on... I mean, to... I, I, there is a second part of that which I we won't play, which I heard um, Sir Hanson Young talking about as well. And she said that actually it happens all the time, that people yell out um, obscene kind of things about...
her private life in in Parliament. And it just, I, I did mean... He, did he just make an equivalence but, or, or say that if, if you hold the view that men are predominantly responsible for, for sexual violence and other violence, which is obviously a view that we hold here on Monday Breakfast, we've been talking about it for a few weeks. But I, I think what I heard there was he said that if you hold the view that, you know, men are responsible for male violence, men are responsible for sexual violence, you can't... You, deny yourself the possibility of having sexual relations with men. Is that what he said? Because uh, that is... Yeah, that's mad. So, mm. like, that's, a, that's a pretty mad position to take. Also, the the thing that he can't quite remember what Sarah Hansen Young was saying in an area where with Janet Rice, um, he said that allegedly they were perhaps talking about that men need to stop raping women. Yeah, well, that men can- are responsible. Well, yes. but if, yeah, that's how can you? There was a stronger thing that he said that all men that he thinks they might have said all men, all are, men rapists. are rapists. Yeah, but I think um, that all men are responsible for the violence of but men. It, which I is, mean, if that's yeah, he he's already backtracked a bit on yes. what he's saying, and for I'm not sure in the current kind of context of everything that's happening, and um, you know, not to take anything away from things that clearly happened before, but you know, a, just a heightened awareness of things that are happening and everything that. <laughs> You can not have that position, and it's flabbergasting that uh, I'm, he'll get no, um, you know, nothing will happen to him. And I, I guess the thing is that, on the other hand, you have Barry Hall um, and Lee Montagna making, you know, and I, I, having listened to that audio, I'd say that they're both equally responsible for the comments that were being made then about women. Uh, one of those people was fired immediately. And yet we can have a politician make comments here, which is much worse, I would say. Mm. I, I say there will probably be no repercussions. Mm. And that is, a, that is a great shame. I mean, it's horrible to bring up again, but just this week, you know, you open the papers and there's, you know, a double homicide in New South Wales and two murders here in Victoria of women by their partners, double homicide of children by uh, their father, you know. So men's violence is such a incredibly real issue in our communities um and to kind of yeah wrap up any discussion of it as misandry is just um yeah incredible kind of culture war i can't i can't put it any other way really yeah well anyway i thought that it was really important to um to highlight that and i think we're going to continue to kind of um, have this discussion through on monday breakfast yeah and really listen back to last week's podcast a great conversation with jackson fairchild from no to violence about you know if you are um a male identifying listener who is dealing with um issues of anger and violence then you know there is uh programs and help and you know people to talk to about that you know it's not this is something very real that affects um a lot of men and their families and you know there is um help out there so yeah tune into that podcast go to the 3cr website and have a listen it's at the uh, one hour mark i had a long half hour discussion with him i think it was really valuable so yeah thanks for playing that audio james that's good um but right now i think we're going to go um finish up alternative news and we're going to go into the interview that i recorded with tim singleton norton from digital rights watch you're listening to a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned to hear the rest of your 3CR podcast. Hello, everybody. Um, so right now we're joined by Tim Singleton-Norton, who is from Digital Rights Watch, who... 
our listeners should be familiar with because we spoke uh, probably a couple of months ago now and at that particular time we, we had a bit of a discussion about what Digital Rights Watch is and um, the kind of work that they're trying to do. So if you're still not sure about that, perhaps go back and, and listen to that episode. Um, but we also spoke about, I guess this is the time that the uh, Cambridge Analytica scandal came out and we spoke about that and some of the, some of the implications of, of that kind of scandal. Um, but we're, I guess, going to yeah continue that kind of discussion um, and also talk about some uh, new ideas for some people, perhaps, um, and some legislation around encryption and encrypting our our phones, our, our data and things like that. So welcome, Tim. Thank you. I guess to start with, um, you know, uh, encryption itself is something that has been around for a very long time in, in lots of different forms, but what does it mean in the kind of current tech kind of um, sense of what 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 is, what is spoken about with encryption now yeah sure I mean encryption uh, in, included in a lot of what we do online um, and everything that we engage in digital really um, you know it used to be something that we used to use for secure communications but increasingly we're using it in everyday life um, when we use iMessage it is end-to-end encrypted uh, when we use banking apps, they're encrypted. Uh, we obviously, you get cryptocurrency, um, but it's not an extreme thing. Like, actually, everyone who carries a digital device in their pocket nowadays needs to use encryption protocols in some regard. And obviously, uh, things like our phones have been encrypted in, for a while, I guess, in the sense of, um, you know, it sends out one message and, and that's the in-between part is encrypted, so you... Um, can't you know it scrambles that what the message that's being sent out there yeah um but governments and government organizations have long kind of had access to kind of a back door of of our phones to be able to listen in when they see fit um hopefully under um a legal position by having a warrant um but what happens with our data in that sense well, actually, um, at the moment, our government actually has unwarranted uh, access to a lot of our communications. Um, they will claim that it's actually just the envelope of um, the metadata around it and not the content itself. But without proper oversight, um, it's very hard to believe that they wouldn't be abusing that sort of power. Um, I think the main reason the, the main reason that these encryption protocols exist is that um, if you looked at a, a standard communication technique, like the radio waves that we're using right now, they can be intercepted. And in extreme cases, they could be intercepted, cut off and replaced, which is some of the warfare that we actually used in the Second and First World War. So we actually tried to engage in psychological warfare by replacing the communications of the enemy. Um, encryption doesn't allow that to happen because, as you said, what happens is I will send out a message and it'll include an A key and then you as the receiver will have the B key. The only way to unlock the whole message is to have both A and B. And so, therefore, you know, you're the recipient, you're the intended purpose. No one can actually step in there. Even if they manage to, you know, grab hold of me and put a bag over my head and take the A key off me without the B, they wouldn't be able to use it. And so it's a very, very strong part of how we actually engage and use technology. And so recently, I think about six months or so ago, after the discussions around G20 that Malcolm Turnbull started to speak about trying to change law in Australia to um, gain access to a backdoor to be able to, I guess, you know, the pretense is about um, 
protecting Australia from terrorism or, um, you know, other kind of threats around that kind of thing. Yeah, and I mean, uh, the best case example is something we've seen in the US where um, the FBI had a, a suspect in custody. Um, they wanted to unlock his phone. Uh, they couldn't. It was actually locked with a key code and then the, the suspect wouldn't give it over. So they went to Apple and said, Apple, it's your device. You created it. Give us access. And Apple quite rightly and not even belligerently said we, we literally can't because that device and the encryption protocols that we put in there are actually intended for the user not us as the as the creator, and there was a huge battle. Um, and actually, at, at you know, on the same token that there, Apple is sitting there saying we can't do it. They're also saying we're not going to do it. Like morally, there's something wrong with you if you think that we're going to break it. And the argument there is exactly what we're facing now: is that if you break encryption for one purpose, you break it for everything. If you give access to these back doors to a government, and even if it is the most lovely government in the world, and you have the proper judicial oversights you create loopholes and backdoors and vulnerabilities that the people we're worried about will then exploit. So it's this very weird environment where you've got a government who, on the one hand, if you you know took their message simply, you said law enforcement should be able to access encrypted communications because the terrorists are after us and that's what they use. Sounds reasonable. Mm-hmm. But that would also break my ability to privately message my wife, to access my bank, um, to do a whole range of things that we actually take for granted. Because of one reason, you actually open up the floodgates to a whole range of other problems. Well, with the incident there you're talking about from Apple, um, you know, I wonder how has that perhaps changed now where you've got your fingerprint that can um, open the phone or the eye retina scan? Yeah, it's a very good question. I mean, and this is something that the UCLA in the US has actually been looking into is the idea of, well... Um, if you can compel someone to put their fingerprint on, is that classified as restraint? Is that Mm. actually classified as forcing them physically to do something? Whereas if you need to get a passcode out of them, you know, could you torture them? Could you actually try and get that information out? I guess on both sides, in the US and the Australian, I do genuinely believe neither government wants to get to that stage where they have to physically force people to unlock things. And so instead they're going through this different route and saying, okay, well, we'll just make the tech companies give us access when necessary. As I said, it's a naive assumption that you can actually do that. It would probably be easier just to say, oh, well, we're going to stick your fingerprint down on your phone even if you resist us, because that at least wouldn't break... The, the daisy chain of encryption protocols that affect everyone else. So I think, you know, like you, you said, you know, I guess rightly for a lot of people that there, there is an issue with, you know, national security, um, you know, those agencies at the same, you know, globally are concerned about how, our, you know, how our data is protected or, or you know, how security threats can be um, intercepted by buying, um, you know, in this way, online and things like that. So, I mean, is there a way uh, that governments can put in legislation or put in restrictions that are going to be supportive of uh, our human rights and and still being protecting of national security interests? The short answer is no, and I think the big, biggest part of what we need to realise is that the, the, the way that we've engaged in this space has changed. You know, like if you look at the, um, the parallel of privacy rights in a physical sense, we accept that we have a right to our backyard and that you know, any government agency can't just bash the back fence down and storm in, but they can if they've gone to a judge, they've shown due cause, they can actually show probable you know, um, unlawful behaviour is happening in that place, and then they're given permission 
with the proper oversights, with the proper reporting back, with the proper transparency needed so that when someone comes back and says, why did you kick that guy's back fence down, there's a reason, there's mm -hmm. a documentation, there's a cause, and you can go, oh, okay, fine, all right. Even if, if it ends up that they had the wrong house, at least they've gone through a process. Well, for starters, we need that process in a digital sense. Um, in terms of whether or not you can then actually go to that, go through that process and then say, okay, break the encryption, well, we still need that idea of what happens for the rest of us. And I mean, again, it's a, it's a very worrying sign that the government is going down this path, as they did with metadata retention. And the argument there is the same. It's okay to spy on the entire populace because it will enable us to pick up the 3 or 4% who are doing the wrong thing. It's not a good argument because mm. we need to make sure that our rights are upheld. If you then hit a brick wall in terms of legislating against it, that's what you have to deal with. You have to go back and say, okay, well, we can't go over that brick wall. We can't bash through it with hard-hitting legislation. We need to uphold those rights. So would, I guess, you know, would it mean that in order to obviously want to have a process by which you're getting a warrant and going through the proper channels, you have um, probable cause that someone has committed a crime or potential to commit a crime or all those things, um, does that mean you still need to be listening to everybody all the time? Because, you know, we saw, we see in America that, they're creating, you know, thousands of these watch lists of, of people all the time. Uh, there can't be hundreds of thousands of people that are potentially terrorists. Otherwise, we have to rethink what a terrorist is, I guess, because if the majority of people are terrorists, then that, that creates a different issue, I assume. Yeah, definitely. And, I mean, I would have no problem if I had faith in the policing and law enforcement agencies that they were doing it the right way. Even if they came back to us and said, okay, you know, in our reporting back, we have been surveilling a million out of the 22 million in Australia. You're right, those numbers are terrifying. Mm. But at least you'd be able to go, okay, good, at least you're targeting the people that you need to. And that's your job. But the argument that we need to target everyone in case they happen to be or it picks up some sort of information, it's a huge imposition on the rights of everyone. And it's not worth it when you actually look at the balancing act. And is that, I guess, you know, I guess it raises to me a question of, of what happens to that data afterwards? Because perhaps you can accept uh, a moment of, well, we've looked at this, we have looked at these people for a period of time, we've seen that there's no real issue um, in these, you know, five suburbs that we're looking at, for instance. Um, so therefore, we've destroyed all of that data from our from our banks, you know. So then we we looked at it. There was nothing there, and we've moved on. I mean, is that something that could be looked at in a sense? Because I, I hear what you're saying in sense you said before about you know perhaps we have a great government um, and they you know have all these rights in in check and they want to do all the right thing, but when it's legislation, it's there for the next government as well, and maybe that government's not as friendly. Yeah, definitely. And data sovereignty is a big issue around the idea of how long do you retain it? Who retains it? Where is it retained? Under what purposes could you delete? Um, and I think that's something that, that the entire internet community is grappling with. I mean, uh, you know, we mentioned the, the Facebook scandals, and that was about data that was taken in under circumstances and then used for purposes it was never supposed to be. Now, if you had the ability to set a, an end date on all data, automatically deleted itself like a like a um like a bond message mm -hmm. um that'd be great um and i think it is it's really intoxicating for a government to see the treasure trove of how much data they could collect and i think it's very hard for them to say okay well we're going to delete that on the you know in the principles of actually protecting our citizenry the more data that you feed into these services the more accurate they can be um that is very true but 
the more data that you have, the more you actually are building up uh, a digital profile of the people who are innocent. I think that's the big problem there. You know, you do want to have a criminal database that is, enables people to actually target down to the people who are doing wrong. And part of that is by building up over time and layering upon layering and building data sets together. But if it's also capturing up those who are completely innocent in that process, what about their rights? Mm. I think that's the big problem there. And we've seen uh, in Europe in different cases where the, they've been used to spy on people for really quite incidental kind of things as well. And I guess that's a worry. And yeah, so yeah, as we worried about all those kind of things, but I guess looking towards, you know, what kind of, what is the government trying to bring in and, and when, like, when can we see those kind of changes? And... Uh, the real big question is what it's going to look like. Um, mm -hmm. So at the moment, all we've had is political bluster. Um, we've had uh, the Prime Minister who um, had a terrible quote that he gave a couple of months ago, which is that the laws of Australia trump the laws of mathematics. <laughs> so I'm pretty sure that I'm hoping one of his speechwriters didn't give him that line. Um, and we've seen Angus Taylor, the, um, the Minister for the Digital Economy, um, also sort of pushing very hard that this was going to solve all their problems. But without the detail, we really don't know. Mm. They're going to hit a big problem in, the, in that detail because, as I said, technically there is no real way to try and uh, break that encryption without breaking it for everyone. Um, so that's going to be a big problem. I think the reasons that we're seeing it being introduced, um, Australia being one of the Five Eyes nations that shares surveillance data between the US, Canada, New Zealand, UK, um, is that uh, Australia is attempting to um, be friends with our allies, try to break one of those problems on behalf of the others. So the FBI and Apple case, um, the US, not only did they fail to compel Apple to do so, they did actually break that encryption protocol. They actually got a third party who just kept going and going and going until they found a way in. Um, but they never convinced Apple to do so. Mm. So if they can then turn around and say, well, Australia now has legislation that would compel tech companies to do so, that's why the US is introducing it. Oh, look, Canada is, now New Zealand is. And this happens across the board, especially when you're looking at terrorism and national security uh, legislation. If one goes, then the rest will follow suit. And I think that's the reason that we're seeing it now. It's, it's Turnbull's attempt to try and throw the US a bone and say, we're doing our part in the Five Eyes. And do you think, uh, you know, with an election coming up perhaps at the end of this year or early next year, that uh, is that something that the Labor government will take up a similar line in, do you think? It's hard to say. I mean, they didn't um, oppose metadata retention at the time. Um, they're not entirely uh, at fault. Um, they're, they're at fault as well in terms of how they've been protecting citizens' data, and they're not as strong as you'd hope. I'd hope they would be. Mm -hmm. um, I think the other thing is you're right to look at the impending election. Um, the Liberals will be throwing a very, very strong focus on national security, on protecting us. Now, for the layperson on the street, if they can turn around and say, we're doing more to protect you from the terrorists, that's going to play well. Mm. When we start getting into the detail and we say what you're doing is impinging on the rights of individuals who are innocent, unfortunately, the usual response we get from people on the street is, well, I am innocent, so I've got nothing to worry about. Mm -hmm. yeah. And as we go, you know, look back over the last decade, we say, okay, but there is there are some scary instances where even if you are innocent, you can be caught up in these problems. You can be falsely targeted. Even the, the Centrelink robo-debt example is a very good one there because there were people who had no debt whatsoever. And a computer algorithm said they did. 
they had no right of reply. So that's the world we're moving into there, is the idea of when someone turns around to you and says, we've been watching you and recording all of your conversations for the past six months, and we're concerned by what you're doing. Even if you're innocent, you'd sort of turn around and go, why were you doing that? Mm. I guess there's still, I feel like there's still a disconnect between, you know, we see the the Bourne movies or, you know, lots of kind of, um, you know, even the information has come out, not just in a sense of, um, you know, WikiLeaks and Snowden releases and things like that, that perhaps not everyone is reading those documents, but they see a snippet of it or they, they hear about some of the things that are happening. You know, people heard, like we said about Cambridge Analytica, uh, do you think that that kind of information is seeping down into people's everyday kind of consciousness a bit? I think it is when it directly impacts them. And uh, the social media examples, I think, are probably the most hard-hitting for mm. most people. Um, you know, you can throw them an example like um, uh, there's one that we uncovered a while ago, which was that uh, asylum seekers entering into immigration centres are actually assessed for their risk to themselves by an algorithm. Mm. No human is engaged in that process. It's a terrifying concept mm. that a computer sits there and looks at your history and says you got a high, you know, high um, security or you got a low security. That should not be done by an automated system. But again, for everyone on the street, they're not an asylum seeker. They're not heading for an immigration centre. They don't care. But when you start turning around and saying Facebook took your personal data, gave it to a shady operator who started using it to try and convince you to vote. Now, even if it's in the US context, it's still a terrifying idea, and you can relate to that. So unfortunately, we're in this world where the more these stories come out, I hope more people will relate to them and understand that this could happen to them. The worry is that a lot of it is already in train. A lot of the legislation is already there, and it's a bit too late to do anything about it. So just is there a way with the um, – because I, as I understand, part of the legislation is trying to create this um, backdoor into um, – to inside any kind of encrypted data. Um, so is it the government would, would own that? Or do you think that, you know, in the age of privatisation, that they would quickly sell that off to another company? No, I think what you'd see is the legislation will actually, um, in incidences where a warrant is obtained, it will compel tech companies to provide access. Okay. Now, what that access is, is up for debate. Because like I said, Technically, it's actually not possible without mm. breaking the whole system. If someone found a way and said, okay, here's a way that we can open a window on that bit of communication, you know, so, you know, the ASIO gets to go to a judge, they get to say, we need access to that, that uh, telephone. A judge says yes. They go over to Optus and Apple and say, combined, we need your support to get into this phone. They open it up, they get what they need, they shut it down again. I think that's their ideal. It's impossible. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and I think that's the big problem here is that we just have to wait and see what this legislation looks like to see what they're planning um, because I'm very curious as to see how they plan to do this. Well, it's, um, it's certainly a very interesting kind of space and I think that we want to keep monitoring and finding out what's happening. Um, thank you so much for joining us again today, Tim. Thank and you. We look forward to um, hearing more about the, what's happening in this space in the future. That was Tim Singleton-Norton from Digital Rights Watch uh, speaking with James here on 3CR Monday Breakfast. You're listening to a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned to hear the rest of your 3CR podcast. 
Anna Spargo Ryan is an award-winning writer living in Melbourne where she writes about brains and love and people and family and food and creativity. She's the author of two novels, The Golf and The Paper House, and her articles have appeared in many, many online and um, other journals throughout, um, which are too many to mention, I think. But right now we're talking about uh, an essay that she wrote in the Mianjin Quarterly, uh, which is called A Formal Inequality. Anna, thanks so much for joining us today. Oh, thanks for having me. Uh, I want to start by letting um, listeners know that they can either purchase the Mianjin Quarterly or they can read it online. And I think that um, particularly people, you know, well, I, I think everyone should um, really have a read because it's a really fantastic article um, which goes into quite great detail about a lot of the kind of issues that are being raised at the moment around uh, sexism in society, about men's violence, and I guess like a bit of a history of, of feminism. Um, you start the article by talking, I guess, about a personal experience, which is mm. using the Me Too uh, campaign, and and then, as I say, like going into really some of the um, failings of, of the Me Too movement. How how did you come about putting this this article together? Um, actually, it came about because I was reading this. Um, this book that I mentioned in the article um, called uh, uh, In Her Own Name, which is a 1986 book by a woman called Helen Jones, who was a historian in South Australia. Um, And she had a chapter in that book called Towards Equal Opportunity, where she talked about what great strides South Australia was making towards equal opportunity in the workplace. And I read that and I thought, what would she think? She died... I want to say about 10 years ago um, and I, I wondered what she would have thought about where we had got to in the years, 32 years that had passed since she wrote this book and it kind of stemmed from there um, because of course South Australia was the uh, the first place government in Australia to give women the vote um, and only the second government in the world so South Australia kind of thought that it was quite a long way ahead when it came to women's rights but actually it, you know, it's an ongoing battle that doesn't always happen the way that people expected at the time they've sort of tried to instigate the change. So, yeah. Yeah, and I guess, um, you know, like what is touched upon a lot in the article as well is that, you know, social movement, social change is, you know, kind of um, not not permanent, is it? Like, I mean, in the kind of system we we live in, that you change one aspect, like you're saying, you legalise um, something, but there's still all the aspects that go beyond that. And you start the article with a quote by Zadie Smith that progress is never permanent, will always be threatened, must be redoubled, restated and reimagined if it is to survive. And I think, yeah, that kind of really sums up the kind of, you know, enormity, enormity of, of the work that needs to be done, I guess. Yeah, I mean, the point of my piece and the, the title being a formal inequality is really about the fact that we can legalise for change, which is what we've done, where we've had the Equal Opportunity Act and we have given women the vote, and but that there are all these social conditions and structural issues that support outside of the law. So I think I said in here somewhere... Um, you know, you can legalise against violence against women, but you can't legalise against young, you know, boys being raised to be aggressive towards women. Uh, how do you legalise against that? Um, and then you 
you know, then think that you've solved the problem by creating a law that prevents it from happening, um, which is an issue in itself. We've done that. We've fixed it. It's against the law now. But actually, we haven't broken down any of the structures that support that behaviour. Yeah, um, and it's Jackson here. One thing I thought was really so strong along that along that line is you said, you know, even the current um, you know anti discrimination laws identify you know sexual harassment as being between a man and a woman, erasing you know anyone who's gender diverse or uh, trans mm -hmm. from that law. So I think it, you know it, the law can be very restrictive while it attempts to liberate. Yes, and of course, in erasing trans people or gender fluid people. Um, they've missed the fact that those are the people who are most mm. likely to experience that behaviour at work anyway. <laughs> well, what do you think you're doing by creating this law? And yeah, definitely. It's, um, there's a lot of exclusatory behaviour in the law. I guess with the, um, you know, there's a lot of really great questions being raised through your essay and, um, you know, I obviously can't expect you to answer all those on this morning or whatever, but um, I guess how do we kind of attempt to get into that space? Because like you said that, um, you know, I think that legal process and, you know, that has a role to play and while it's limited that there's still a role there for it to play. But in the things like you said about, um, you know, how do we get to these questions of, it seems to me, you know, like a part is about conversations and about, you know, the conversations that need to be had with young boys and young men and and that they need to be an ongoing thing and they need to be done the right way and all that. Um, mm. But, but yeah, I mean, how, how do we do that? It Because that seems to be such a... It's kind of a personal thing in a way, isn't it? Because though, do they those questions, those, those conversations need to be had more in the public maybe so that there's... Um, so we know what, what the right way is to do that or, you know, some accountability, I guess. Yeah, I think the most important thing that we can do is recognise that the law doesn't stand in for changing behaviour. Um, and then I do think that having some of those conversations in public would be good. I think breaking down some of the statistics to kind of properly represent what's happening would be good. So in this essay, I've mentioned a report or a study that came out of Sydney Uni where they reported that 10% of women are sexually harassed at work. But if you look more closely into the statistics in that study, 6% of white, straight, abled women are sexually harassed at work, whereas 18% of culturally and linguistically diverse people, women, are. Um, and I think 16% or 18% of disabled women are. And so it's not truly representative of what is actually happening, that we're missing the nuance of what it's like to be a woman who doesn't fit that white, abled, this straight, you know, profile. Um, that a lot of... The fact that we report on it like that leaves a whole lot of women behind. Um, and I think that having this homogenous group called women is actually not very helpful. And when we start to have conversations about how we can speak to boys, about, you know, being raised not to kill women in parks, and um, part of it is about understanding their, uh, I guess, relationship with different groups of women as well, where, you know, a trans woman is three times more likely to be the victim of physical violence. What does that mean when we start to talk to boys about how they need to behave towards women? 
And I guess, you know, I think it certainly doesn't help when we have politicians calling um, calling out women in fellow politicians in Parliament and then, um, you know, backing up their comments yeah, in the media. Yeah, doubling by... and tripling down on it, yeah. Yeah, and I, I guess, I think that, you know, I guess another aspect that, you know, certainly not for everyone, but a lot of uh, young men sort of look to football, in particularly in Melbourne, as idols as well, and that is a culture that certainly has, um, you know, we've seen again with Triple M sort of um, boys club. Um, mm. And, you know, I guess the one thing that, you know, is is that for other, you know, older men and, and women is to be kind of strong role models for young boys as well. And so that there are people around those boys growing up that have people to look look out on and to mm. to um, that they respect and that they can get some clear sort of guidance on. I think there's a real issue in, say, I saw there was an article in The Age yesterday about um, Bert Newton and how he's a relic and we should just excuse his behaviour. And mm. so this was in relation to his Logie's appearance. And I thought, well, you know, if we keep doing that, where do we draw the line at this has been enough generations now? You know, he's it, it's hard to change behaviour, but in terms of publicising that behaviour, you know, the AFL does a lot of work at a policy level when it comes to gender equality, when it comes to, um, you know, cultural issues that exist within football clubs and within the AFL more broadly. It has programs for, you know, um, reducing violence against women and reducing alcohol issues and all these things. But then the actual culture of it is sort of revealed through things like Barry Hall's comments. And again, it's, thinking that it's enough to say, well, we have a program that supports women. We have the AFLW. We've sort of fixed it now on paper. And so it doesn't actually then necessarily perpetuate through the systems that exist, like the boys' club that has been, you know, um, created over a long period of time, that these guys are getting on the radio where they have a platform and saying these things that reflect a different kind of approach to equality or to gender, and it's not necessarily what the AFL thinks it's about because it has these policies in place, but that's what is being presented to the public. Mm. I mean, that's the really dangerous part, and, yeah, thinking that it's enough to say, well, we have these policies Mm -hmm. when it doesn't change any of the behaviour. Yeah, it makes me think of, I'm sure Channel 7 um, has a policy around um, reducing violence against women, but then, you know, every... Uh, weekend, Wayne Carey is on television, and I, exactly. to my mind, there hasn't been a formal apology uh, made for his, you know, slew of appalling behaviour across the years. And it's just kind of, um, you know, forgive and forget. They often say it's a very forgiving community, but you know, it doesn't mm. set any kind of community standard at all. No, and I sort of feel like is there a is there a level of behaviour that we don't have to forgive and put someone on TV afterwards? Mm. Or, you know. Uh, well, why is Wayne Carey the person who needs to be on TV? And it's so unapologetic as well, mm. as you say. So, well, here he is, the king. You know, we still call him the king. And he is a, you know, yeah, as you say, a whole slew of, of antisocial violent behaviour. Mm. Um, that That's acceptable because, you know, we think that it it's okay that... It's well, yeah, and that we have a women's round and we have a gender equality round and we have all these, you know, things that are supposed to play to um, all of the the um, 
different kinds of people who are involved in the AFL. But then, yeah, we go, yeah, but the King Wayne Carey, you know, he glassed his girlfriend in the face, allegedly, but we still want to put him on the TV, mm. which is, yeah, I mean, it, it's, it just says a lot about the way that we actually think of some of these issues, that we, um, you know, we're happy for that to happen because we think that the structural stuff has changed underneath, but it hasn't. One of the things you mentioned in the article is talking about the Helen Razor interview and the term trickle-down feminism, which is a term that I, I love. I think it's a, a great way of kind of summing up some of the mm. issues that perhaps, um, you know, the way that me- feminism is portrayed in, I guess, mainstream circles and things um, has some of the limitations. I guess, like, how would you describe some of the, the um, that term perhaps for listeners and some of the issues around that? Um, yeah, so that was Dr. Shakira Hussein who said in that interview with Helen Rose, I had not thought that feminism's agenda was to empower women at the very top of the heap. I thought that feminism was about attentiveness to women who were further towards the bottom of the heap and being trampled on. Um, and, I mean, like trickle-down economics, which is obviously, you know, based on that that kind of idea, um, that what we're doing is creating, again, laws around how to support women through quotas or through um, other kind of gender equality laws that miss the women that are at the bottom of the heap in terms of um, equality and rights and that we say, okay, well, again, the homogenous group of this thing called women, um, we've ticked that box. We have a woman who is the CEO of our company or the chairman or, um, and so we've done what we need to for that. And what we end up doing is creating a, a wider and wider gap between those women who are white and disabled women um, and the, the women who aren't, who don't fit that profile. We've gone, we've created these opportunities for these women and actually what we've done is just kind of closed the gap between them and men and in doing so have missed all of the women who don't fit that profile. Um, sorry, I just said the same thing twice then, but, <laughs> you know... Um, Sorry. Yeah, it's worth repeating. Uh, sorry, I didn't have my <laughs> mic on then, but that's what I said. <laughs> um, well, unfortunately, we're going to have to go. We've got another segment um, lined up, sure. Anna, but it's been really, really great talking to you, and we'd love to have a chat again sometime if we can. Um, and I would encourage people, again, we'll send out the article later today for people to read. I just put it on read. Twitter. So. Oh, already sent out, yep. So <laughs> I'd encourage people to um, read the article and read more of Anna's writing because... Um, it's really great. And thanks a lot oh, for thank um, chatting to us, Anna. Yeah, thanks, thanks Anna. Me. See ya. Bye. Up next on 3CR Monday Breakfast, it's our regular segment, Over the Wall. And this week on Over the Wall, Duncan Graham is back with Mark O'Brien from Tenancy Victoria, and it's all about new tenancy laws and no reason evictions. Hello. I'm Duncan Graham, and this is Over the Wall. Today, we are back with Mark O'Brien, CEO of Tenancy Victoria, formerly known as the Tenants' Unions. We discuss the upcoming new Residential Tenancies Act, what it may contain, and we drill down especially on no reason notices to vacate. We also compare the process of constructing the new legislation with previous tenancy bills.
When the Andrews Labor government gained office in 2014, it launched almost immediately into a review of tenancy law. After extensive submissions and hearings, and as a new election looms, we still have not seen the legislation, nor any timetable for when it might appear. The only murmurs were an announcement in October of last year about projected reforms to provisions around pets in rental properties and tenants' ability to improve features of their homes. With only 15 sitting days of State Parliament left before the election, we have to wonder whether the bill is about to drop off the agenda until the next Parliament. Back in March, when the bill still looked imminent, I spoke to Mark O'Brien from Tenancy Victoria about the legislation. He also focused on the existing right of landlords to evict tenants with 120 days notice without giving a reason. We're still in a position that following some announcements in October last year about 14 reforms that looked positive for tenants, we're lacking some detail about specifically what those reforms will look like. It's basically a piece of law, so the words on the bit of paper count. So we really need to see what the actual reforms look like. There's a couple of those reform proposals that if you implemented them different ways, they'd have a different effect and a quite significant different effect. So they'd go from being good for tenants to being not so good for tenants. So the one that we usually sort of talk about is the no reason notice to vacate. So one of the proposals put up about that was that the no reason notice to vacate could just be turned into an any reason notice to vacate. Now, obviously, that would be terrible for tenants. The contrary option is that the no reason notice to vacate just gets repealed altogether. That would be great for tenants. And it would send a really powerful signal for a lot of tenants about you can't just be evicted for no reason whatsoever. Mark next compared Victoria's regulations on these no reason notices to other states. Most of the other states bar, I think, the ACT, have some kind of no specified reason notice to vacate. Our notice period is actually longer than a number of the other states in Victoria, but shorter than it was to begin with. So uh, the original act, the notice period for no reason notices was six months. That was reduced in a reform in the late 1990s to 120 days. Well, it initially went down to 90 days even, and then it was bumped back up to 120 days. It's still a relatively short period of time. How often are these no-reason notices used? Mark answered and went on to urge the government to beef up protections for an ever-growing cohort of tenants. We don't actually see that many notices. One of the problems with that is people often respond to the notice just by moving out. So they don't actually seek any advice or anything. They just go, oh, the agent or the landlord's given me a notice. That means I have to go. So they don't actually appreciate that there may be a challenge they could make to that notice. The people who contact us are often the ones who don't like the notice or realise that there might be something they can do about the notice and they're wanting to figure out what they can do. So the numbers are actually pretty small. When Consumer Affairs did some market research, I think... The number of people who said they'd received a no-reason notice to vacate was less than about 5%. But the importance of those notices is they create a perception amongst tenants that you're just fundamentally insecure in your tenancy. 
So if I ever ask for anything, I can get one of these notices. And it feeds into the common perception that tenants have that the landlord can just boot you out whenever they want to. Now that's not strictly true. Landlords often have to give a lot of specified reason and provide some evidence around that. But at the end of the day, the landlord can give you a no reason notice to vacate. There's an element in which people are probably overstating the ease with which landlords can evict you on the one hand, but fundamentally it's still true. Maybe I'm asking you to read tea leaves here, but do you think that the Andrews government has the political appetite to get rid of this? It is a bit like a tea leaves reading exercise, but we're trying to be optimistic and have tried to be optimistic all through this process that the government will appreciate that the world is different now, that people are stuck in tenancies for a longer period of time and stuck being a tenant for a longer period of time. So you can't have the same sort of hands-off approach to regulating the market that we've had for quite some time. When the Act was put in place first in the 1980s, people still were thinking that ultimately the private rental market would shrink. You'd have most people who were poor in public housing and the rest of us would get on to home ownership and it's just not the way the world worked out. The truth of it is now the numbers of tenants are increasing and people are spending longer as tenants and in individual tenancies. You have to support that through better law. Tenancy Victoria has been an active lobbyist in the shaping of the new laws. Mark explained some of his frustrations with the process so far. We've done quite a lot during the course of the whole review process. So we've done many submissions. We've certainly been in regular contact with the Minister's office. One of the things that we think is a problem with the way the review was done is it's largely been a kind of bureaucratic review. In the past, these kinds of reviews of the tenancy law, particularly the larger ones, have often had a more political focus. So the leadership for the review has come from the political arm of government rather than the bureaucratic arm of government. So this one's actually worked the other way around and our view is that that's not the best way for these reforms to be done. A lot of the reform options have been looked at in a very sort of zero-sum way. You give something to tenants, you have to take something away. Or you give something to landlords and you have to take something away. And that's not particularly helpful. Whilst we've been in regular contact with the Minister's office, largely this has been a bureaucratic process. That doesn't mean that government can't intercede at any point in time and stamp their authority on the process. And we'd certainly encourage the government to do that. One of the good things about the announcements that were made last year is the Premier came out very strongly and talked about how important it was in a changing social environment that tenants are better protected. For too long, tenants have been treated as second-class citizens and the Premier was very strong about that. Um, what we'd like to see is that strong language get translated into better law. Mark has a long history in this area. He was also involved in the shaping of the 1997 Residential Tenancies Act, which is still current. I asked him to compare how that process in the 90s differed from the current review. It was different then, and ironically enough, that review in the 1990s was actually done by the Liberal government. And you can imagine, I think at the time, for a whole range of reasons, we were very concerned about how that review would actually work. Contrary to our initial reservations, by and large, that review was very well done. It was oversighted by a then backbencher, Louise Asher, 
it was a long review. They canvassed a lot of different perspectives in that review, but they stayed focused on wanting to achieve positive outcomes in a few specific areas. And that really helped, I think, frame the review more effectively. The Andrews government has an impressive record in quick and gutsy reform. The fracking ban, the safe injecting facility in Richmond, the huge infrastructure project around urban road and rail grade separation. Why then... After four years, do we have no Tennessee bill? A Minister of Consumer Affairs who is stonewalling, only 15 sitting days left of this government and no announcement of a plan to table the bill. If this bill is pulled from the agenda, it is likely to become an issue at the November election. All tenants should be wary of a political fight between Labor and Liberal over these issues. To urge the bill be passed before then, go to makerentingfair.org and join their campaign. Times are ticking. That's it for this week. Thanks as usual to Mark O'Brien for his time and insights. You're listening to a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned to hear the rest of your 3CR podcast. You are listening to 3CR Monday Breakfast. Thanks very much to Duncan and Peter from Over the Wall for their regular contributions. And uh, up next, we're going to be talking to Brett DeHoot, who is a key organiser with Our City, Our Square, who you might have heard of. They're working to stop the massive development by Apple Corporation at Fed Square. You might have seen their posts on Facebook or Twitter or visited their excellent website at ourcitysquare.org. If you haven't, I encourage you to visit it ASAP. Uh, Good morning, Brett. Thank you very much for joining us. You're both. Good to be here. So, Brett, um. You're here really to talk about some recent revelations that were published by Clay Lucas in Fairfax um, about a week ago, uh, that breaking down some of the donations that have been made to our new Lord Mayor, Sally Cap. Uh, so during her campaign, Sally Cap, who herself is a successful property developer and the former executive director of the Property Council of Victoria, promised that she would not be beholden to property developers if she became mayor. Brett, can you take us through a few of these donations and why they are concerning to you as you continue your fight for Fed Square? Sure. Well, one thing we really want uh, at our city, our square, is a, a mayor and a council who are committed as we are, you know, to saving the Yarra building and keeping Fed Square as it is and having the Apple Store somewhere else. So when you see that one mayoral candidate totally outperforms all the other candidates, I think, combined in fundraising. You know, you know that obviously she's getting a lot of support and from a certain group of people. She raised about $332,000, which is, you know, remarkable compared to her opponents. And uh, more than $50,000 of that came from those with property interests. So we're talking about people like the real estate agent Nelson Alexander, um, who stumped up cash and signage costs, the Hendry Group, um, Hanson Junkin, uh, Build Construction, you know, individual real estate agents, you know, high-profile real estate agents, you know, all donating 3000 at a time, 2500 at a time, so on and so forth. Um, the most concerning donation for us, though, was uh, to Sally Cap from Deborah Beale. Now, she, Deborah Beale is the chair of Federation Square, and uh, they are, of course, uh, very excited about the, the Apple's 
mega store you know, takeover. Mm. And Debraville, who is chairing this independent entity, Fed Square, decided to donate $1,500 to Sally Cat, which to, to us, um, well, the strikes us is totally outrageous that she would do that. Yeah, it suggests, I mean, to me, a, a conflict of interest. You're saying that Deborah Beale is on the decision-making board, you know, part of a group of people who may have the final say uh, if, it, if, it, if, it is, um, if the decision is made by uh, elected and non-elected individuals rather than, rather than citizens. Um, Deborah Beale has donated to the new mayor's uh, campaign uh, along with a whole lot of other property developers. What do you read into that donation? Where ha, have you spoken to Sally Cap uh, since she became Lord Mayor? Have have you heard, has she made any? We've made. Go ahead. We sir. have made contact with Sally Cap during the campaign. Uh, since the donations were made public uh, a week or so ago, she's been away on a holiday, so we haven't been able to talk to her since then. A well-timed um, holiday. When Deborah, Deborah Beale made that donation, you know Sally Cap wasn't. The mayor. She was just one of you know nine, I think, candidates running for mayor. Mm-hmm. And how on earth Deverville would have been able to legitimately work with another mayor had someone else won the election? I don't know. Um, it also shows that Deverville was very happy to support an individual who um, shares the same vision for Fed Square, which is really essentially that it become a lobby for Apple. So um, she had many choices. I think the choice Deverville should have made as the chair of Fed Square was to not support any candidate, of course. Um, and I should point out, too, that the state government has total control over the project. The, Fed, the management of Fed Square, it's a corporation, the management of Fed Square has decided to support the government's plan. But the government has, um, if you like, sort of taken over planning from both the city of Melbourne and Fed Square. So what role, if any, will Deborah Beale play um, in, in the ongoing negotiations about this megastore? That's a good question. I mean, the, the role they should have played from the start is to, op- to oppose it, to not consider it, to maintain the vision for Fed Square that is laid out in the charter for Fed Square, which is that it's a public gathering place. Yes, there is some retail, you know, um, yes, there is some, you know, hospitality, but it's all about the cultural institutions, the cultural life of Melbourne and being, a, you know, a, a rare moment of public space in an increasingly crowded city. So that's the role that we would have loved uh, Fed Square to have. We'd also love them to program more arts and culture and hospitality events mm. there rather than just handing it over. If you walk past Fed Square, you know, most days of the week you will see something entirely commercial going on in that public space. I mean, you know, the other day I walked past and there was an online betting I think they call it an activation, where essentially lots of, you know, promo girls and promo gals are giving away promotional material to get people to online bet for the World Cup. So, you know, mm. that is not what Fed Square was created for. You know, that's why we, you know, we, we didn't create that magnificent space for that. Yeah. That's what I'd like Fed Square to do, and I'd like them to stand up against the state government, if necessary, to say, no, we don't want an Apple store there, but instead they have rolled over and uh, given the state government whatever they want which is probably why they were appointed to the board in the first place. Hi, it's James here. Yeah, I guess from my perspective as well, I was thinking like over the years that Fed Square has been a really challenging place to interact with any kind of protests uh, that have happened. There's always been a lot of confrontation from the people that run Fed Square. They're hostile to anyone kind of, um, you know, peaceful protest being a part of it there, and that kind of creates a, a conflict within itself. And 
even the design of the square, you know, it, it is set up in a way that really prohibits people from spending a lot of time there, particularly in summer or if it's raining or things like that. It's a lack of shelter and, you know, it, it feels like it's it was immediately taken away from being this public space to a place that um, has gone on this trajectory on and on to a place that, as you say, now just seems to house corporate interests. I think that's a great point, actually. And, of course, everyone's an architect, you know, as Donald Bates would know, the, the key designer of the square. Mm. Um, everyone commonly has that complaint about the lack of shelter and lack of shade and so on and so forth at Fed Square, but it still has become a very successful gathering place for Melbourne around major events or major protests or both. And one thing that we feel certain of is that there is no way Apple, being Apple, are going to accept that their flagship mega store in the heart of Melbourne is going to be interrupted by large gatherings of people mm. doing anything but retail. Yeah, there, and and we you know we look at Fed Square on a daily basis. Now we see all sorts of protests. Sometimes very small, you know. Sometimes very large, or sometimes just very happy, a positive gathering. We're watching the the big screen for some you know sporting event or whatever. There is no way Apple Corporation is going to let tens of thousands of Melbournians gather in the square if it interrupts the entrance to their store. So, I think a lot of people who might use Fed Square two times a year, maybe for something big and major like that, don't realise that Apple will get what Apple wants. And certainly the protesters, people who protest in the square, will be yet again disadvantaged and moved on because commerce will rule supreme. And we haven't heard a single thing from Fed Square management, Deborah Beale or her colleagues, or state government, about maintaining Fed Square's use for that. It's really, in our view, going to be nothing more than a lobby. Mm. Brett, um, I'm, I, I want to point out that the the website that you've put together, our city, your, our square dot org, uh, has a lot of really great uh, calls to action for people who are passionate about uh, maintaining Fed Square as it is. What are your plans uh, with our city, our square dot org moving forward, and how uh, how can other citizens get involved in disrupting some of these um, secret government plans, or secret government deals, as you put it, that are made behind yeah, closed really- doors? They literally are secret government deals with the world's largest corporation. So, and the, we know nothing, and we just get told at the end, "Oh, it's already happened, and we should all be excited." So, you know, it's literally that secret. We're not exaggerating when we use that phrase. Um, and speaking of secret deals, we have a few plans um, ready between now and election day for the campaign because it's not—it's not irreversible. You know, um, we've spoken to, of course, we have met with literally dozens of people and decision-makers across the city, all the major political parties, and you might be surprised at the level of pushback against this plan from within the Labor Party, mm. and certainly in the opposition, and the Greens, of course. And I can't give specific details of our plans, but I absolutely guarantee there will be very tangible ways, and very family-friendly, um, fun, tangible ways people can get involved and protect um, Fed Square for what it is. Um, for a start, you can go to our website, our city square.org follow us on instagram facebook twitter that's a great way to keep abreast of things right now we've got a virtual protest you can print out a little poster and photograph yourself and put that up online you can of course donate you know we've had thousands and thousands and thousands of dollars of donations that's how we got those uh, posters don't let apple poison our bed square all over melbourne mm-hmm. um, but, but following us and saying touch is great um also though we're going to have some gatherings off the clan so to speak and we really need and want people to get involved in that. They'll be friendly, they'll be fun, uh, they'll be very pro-family, very pro-fed square, and we can't give away too much, 
too many details because, as you said, Fed Square isn't always welcoming of people protesting in the square. Mm-hmm. And uh, when you're dealing with Apple and the state government, you're up against some very powerful people. But we will have gatherings in the square. Well, that all sounds exciting. I look forward to uh, hearing and seeing more. As well as that, congratulations on a on a great and strong campaign and a great website. As I've said a couple of times, it looks really good. Um, and yeah, all the best uh, with your work in the future. Thanks for joining us this morning on Monday Breakfast. Oh, just look- Thanks so much. We really appreciate it. We'd love people out there just to follow our city, our square, on whatever their preferred methodology is. And, yeah, we'll keep fighting. Thanks, Brett. Thanks. You're listening to a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned to hear the rest of your 3CR podcast. You are listening to 3CR Monday Breakfast with Jackson and James here in the studio. And up next, uh, it is the beginning of NAIDOC week. Uh, Obviously, 3CR have their Beyond the Bars uh, broadcasting happening across this week, broadcasting from prisons across the state uh, in um, Victoria's only prison-based broadcast. So tune into that. It starts at 11am this morning. And uh, in the spirit of NAIDOC, this year's theme is Because of Her, We Can. We're joined on the phone by Dr. Virginia Marshall, who is the inaugural Indigenous Postdoctoral Fellow with the Australian National University's School of Regulation and Global Governance and the Fenner School of Environment and Society. Dr. Marshall's book, Overturning Aquinalius, offered an award-winning exploration of the cultural connections that exist between Indigenous Australians and the coasts, rivers and waterways of the continent and the legal ramifications of this deep history in regards to native title and Indigenous rights. She joins us this morning. Dr. Marshall, thanks for sharing your time with us. Oh, thanks, Jan. Jackson, Mabu to everybody and a happy NAIDOC week. Look, the theme for this year's NAIDOC is Because of Her, We Can. What does that theme mean to you? Well, I was asked that very uh, question um, in the whole idea of what NAIDOC means to Aboriginal women and I, I think it's more than just um, celebrations about our own identity. It's really celebrations of uh, the people in our communities that have gone before us and created um, an incredible history that we can be proud of, a language that holds us strong and a culture that um, is the the longest uh, continuing culture in the world. So how fortunate are we? Mm. I wanted to ask, I mean, there's been a lot of promotion of yourself and your work through NAIDOC, and as a published and celebrated academic, you're a practicing lawyer, you're an advisor on national and international policy, you're regularly held up as an example of an Indigenous success story. I wanted to know how that sits with you, and I wanted you to to reflect on how your journey has been from a young woman just starting out and now to a stateswoman and a spokesperson. Well, thank you very much for those those lovely comments. I, I think that it comes from a very humble beginning, and I, and I don't think it's finished yet. I think there's a lot of, so, so we know in our community, we call it unfinished business. Um, now, I had four years of high school, and I didn't really like school um, at all very much, apart from a couple of teachers. And I went on to do other things in the arts. I was a horsewoman from an early age, so... That was one of the things that I wanted to see myself doing for the rest of my life. Um, however, it was uh, one of those things that happen when a child gets sick and you can't 
do any um, any career that you had in mind any further. So uh, I jumped into TAFE, uh, and I also think TAFE is such a wonderful institution. And then I jumped from there into university and um, did six degrees in five and a half years. Wow. <laughs> that is amazing. <laughs> wow. Yeah, which was 14 subjects a year and three in the summer session. Well, you should so... see James's face in the studio, Dr. Marshall. <laughs> We're both at uni at the moment. We're part-time. We are, we are blown away. <laughs> yeah, well, I, I, I now in hindsight say to my kids, don't try and do what I did. <laughs> <laughs> um, no, it, it, comes, it comes at a huge investment and, you know, the kids were fantastic at that time. It was something that was good for all of us. It wasn't just, a, I wasn't thinking of a career. I was thinking of really having a better life and that's why I think education is so important. So that was my journey and uh, having the opportunity to do a PhD at Macquarie University was a really uh, changing uh, life experience for me because it's such a journey and it's such a commitment and you learn a lot about yourself and you also um, have to be committed and passionate about the subject matter that you're doing. And I'm very passionate about these things, uh, especially to do with water and and rights, and um, just invested in the, in the whole area of um, really making a better future. Yeah, I mean, it's a good segue through to your book, Overturning Aquinalius, which looks at the cultural connections between Indigenous Australians and the waterways of this country, the coasts and the rivers. Can you expand a little about Indigenous connection to water in your research and why it's important for the rest of Australia to recognise and understand? I think that the most important thing is that prior to 1788 and um, British settlement uh, forward slash invasion, <laughs> uh, we really have uh, a strong and lasting enduring culture of relationships, understanding who we are as, as family groups and, and how everything is understood. And that interruption was a huge interruption, not only for us, but across the world in different Indigenous communities. And we're finding the same problems um, as we do today. So our importance in, in water and land and all, everything uh, in our, our environment, um, the trees, the water, um, the rocks, um, the ability to go fishing, all of those things make us as our identity. So that's why water is really important, whether it's inland, coastal, um, that is a, a crucial to our identity. So we need to have that acknowledged firstly and then we need to have a very um, serious conversation about how um, Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples had been moved away either forcefully or by other means um, from that point of uh, British uh, invasion and all of the decades that have passed. So we need to re really reclaim our identity first and foremost. With that connection, you say, to the to the water and to land and stuff as well, but with the water, I'm fascinated about, you know, how does that, you know, we see so much of the water is being polluted and, and you know, we've seen the Northern Territory be opened up recently to have more uh, coal seam gas mining and things like that. And, you know, what do you think the impact of that is for, you know, for Aboriginal people who have that connection to the water when it is being um, poisoned and polluted in that way? Well, I think um, if I can draw on what I'm doing uh, at the moment is uh, sitting between a science school with Fenner 
and with the, the School of Regulation and Global Governance, it's obvious and so um, um, so much of uh, discussions at the UN down to um, Indigenous communities and other uh, activist groups that, you know, water is not um, uh, unlimited. Um, it definitely um, can't be extracted at the height that it is, not only in Australia but across the world. Uh, and it's and it's also um, a, a new phenomenon to have bottled water, for example, um, as it's um, been talked about recently. Plastic is so cheap, uh, but the water is cheaper. And you know how much water are we extracting just to have bottled water? Um, you know, it's hundreds of millions of dollars in an industry. Um, and as you pointed out, extractive industries such as mining um, can't uh, be uh, um, uh, practised unless you have access to water. So we've seen up in the Carmichael mine in Queensland or, as you've pointed out, in the Northern Territory, any type of mining requires water. And not far from where I'm living, um, there's a, a huge coal extraction that what is also on the table and what seems to be going ahead, but it needs extraction of water and a considerable amount of it. So there's no replacement for that water, and that concerns a lot of people across the world. Virginia, uh, we are talking to you up in New South Wales and it is a bit of a crackly line. I'm not sure whether you can take a little step to your left or you know, jiggle the handset a little to try and fix it up a little. We're loving what you're saying, but it is crackling a little. We'll, okay. we'll see can how we go. Can you hear me now? Yeah. That, is that, that better? That is better. Thank, thanks, uh, thanks, Doctor. Look, last week we were having a conversation with regular 3CR contributor Robbie Thorpe about the change in tone at a national, or, or really in uh, Victoria and New South Wales recently, um, from political leaders over the past few months. You know, 18 months ago, there was a lot of talk about constitutional recognition as a pathway mm. to Indigenous empowerment. And now leaders in Victoria and New South Wales are talking about the possibility of a treaty. What's your position on treaty? And from a, a legal perspective, what are some of the obstacles and hurdles that you see in this kind of... Robbie was talking about a bit of a rush to announce, you know, we're going to have a treaty, we're going to do a treaty. What what would the treaty be for? What does it need to include? And to you, what are some of your concerns with the process as it stands? I, I think the most important thing is um, when I went over to Canada and uh, University of Victoria in BC and I got to talk to a lot of the, the chiefs and, and other academics at the university and... Uh, it was obvious that the treaties that we hold up as solving the problems of the past also um, are, have failed in a lot of circumstances. Uh, they certainly in the historic treaties and also with the, with the contemporary modern treaties. So they didn't always see it as the cure-all for everything. Um, however, as any good lawyer knows, that if you have a good contract between parties that are able to negotiate and also uh, are able to negotiate with a sufficient time to also develop a, a sound relationship to understand what your responsibilities are in that, that contract. That's very much the basis of a treaty. Um, I, I have had a, a view and a read of the Victorian uh, Treaty Bill and it uh, appears to be a preliminary discussion on how to go forward with the notion of treaty. 
Um, we have all sorts of treaties. Australia makes treaties on a regular basis internationally. And we also have uh, uh, types of agreements with, on the larger scale, such as the free trade agreements. So, you know, this is something that we do on a commercial basis regularly. But when it's to do with um, a, a once and for all, a final agreement, which this sort of treaty is supposed to be, um, to plan out the rights and obligations, but also the opportunities to have substantive decision-making within communities. This is what it's hoped to do. However, um, I would think it is something that you can't rush. Uh, when I, many years ago, when I was talking to Sir Timothy O'Regan, who is a chief, a Maori chief in New Zealand, Aotearoa, and he said to all of us, you know, we took 25 years to uh, go through our process of settlement for all our fishing rights. And it's really important that you take that time to make sure that not only um, is everything in that you want to have in, um, and I would say that water and uh, many other areas of resources are what we should be talking about that should be in that agreement for um, uh, Indigenous peoples. But, you know, those are the sort of conversations. It's only at the initial stage that you're talking about these things in Victoria. Mm -hmm. So it's a platform for discussion, but it's not the end of the journey. And the most important thing is that we need a federal treaty, as they have done in, in the US, where only the, the federal Congress can terminate that agreement or those rights. So um, really, we should be talking um, across states and territories and have the federal government lead that uh, treaty discussion, which is not happening. Yeah, are you seeing any um, intent from the federal government in that space in your discussions with that era of government? Well, I, th I think it's like every Australian, um, when you sit down and you read newspapers or you listen to the radio, um, I think that discussion at this present time has been closed off. Um, so that makes it very difficult to advance uh, treaty discussions in other states or territories. Um, as I said, it's the Federal Congress in America that leads the way and also um, is the other party in those discussions of those rights, obligations and opportunities. And only the Federal Congress in the States have that power um, to terminate or to uphold. And there's been a case recently where, uh, because of that um, relationship, that fiduciary duty relationship between um, Aboriginal uh, peoples, um, Indian um, uh, and the Indian Act, for example, um, is that the um, US government has to uphold those treaty relationships and those treaties that have been made. So it does make such a difference when the government's representing the rights of um, those peoples in the US against a state. So this is exactly could, could happen mm. in the future, where it Look, could be the federal government really defending those rights for us here in Australia hopefully. against a state. Hopefully we see them jump on board. We have completely run out of time. There's a lot more I wanted to touch on, particularly law reform in light of our you know, Beyond the Bars broadcast that's happening all this week. I'm sure you'd have some contri contributions there. But I really want to thank you in what must be a busy Thanks week so for much. you. Um, and hopefully we can talk again in the future because there's a lot that we didn't get through in just a 15-minute interview. But thanks heaps for your time this morning. Thanks so much and have a happy Nadoc week to everyone. Thanks, Doctor. Thank you. Take care. Bye. Bye. You've been listening to 3CR Monday Breakfast. Thanks for your time. Up next is Women on the Line.
You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.